Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I am an executive producer for iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I'm just back after a week off on vacation, and I nearly forgot how my intro goes. So that shows how my brain works. But enough of that. So I follow a lot of gamers and streamers. And there's some folks I just, you know, find really entertaining. And when their love of games comes through on top of them being entertaining, I know I've really hit something that appeals to me. And in mid-September 2020, it seemed like every single person I followed was chatting about something called the RTX 3090, or in some cases, the 3080. And the gamers out there already know exactly where I'm headed on this one. But while I love video games, I'm not exactly dialed into the heart of hardcore competitive gaming. And so I had no clue what the heck this thing was. I I mean, I, I had a an inkling, but I had to look it up. And it's a new high-performance graphics card with a graphics processing unit, or GPU. So today, I thought we would talk a little bit about GPUs in general, where they originated, why they're important for modern games, and why they can be so hard to get hold of, as well as so expensive, And here's another interesting tidbit. The main reason they're hard to get hold of has nothing to do with video games. We'll also cover why the RTX 3080 and the 3090 cards have had a, well, let's call it a troubled launch. Now, despite the fact that graphics cards have been around for more than two decades, there's still something that I have only had limited experience with. And here's where the grumpy old man Jonathan comes out to, you know, shake his fist at a passing cloud. See, I come from a time when your CPU 
the amount of RAM your computer had, and the operating system you were running were really the only things that mattered when it came to which games you could actually play on your machine, or how well those games would perform on your PC. Heck, I remember when games first started requiring that your PC run on Windows, and I was a Windows holdout. I preferred the fast responsiveness and lighter framework of DOS. The DOS user interface consisted of command prompts. You would actually type in stuff in a line command to change directories and navigate to where a file was, and then type out the execute file to really get it started. Now, it wasn't actually hard to do, but it also was not intuitive at all. And it stood as a barrier for the average person to, you know, embrace computers. Windows made stuff easier to understand. You just, you know, move your cursor to the picture that represents whatever it is you want to do, and then you click on it. That was super simple. But Windows also required more processing power from the PC, and so... I was of the snooty opinion that I would rather set aside that power for the stuff I was running on the computer apart from the operating system. That's how old I am. Uh, also, eventually, it didn't matter. Eventually, games started requiring Windows, and I had to give in. Over time, game developers began building out games that required more oomph from the PCs that were running the games. And sometimes that meant you just had to have a, you know, a pretty recent CPU to run the game, which meant that if you were relying on a computer that was a year old or older, you might be out of luck unless you could upgrade your machine or, you know, in really severe cases, you'd have to go out and buy a whole new one. But one thing that PCs had that really opened up some opportunities were expansion slots built into the motherboard. Now, these are standardized slots that are that are built into that motherboard. There've been a couple of different standards over the years, but PCI Express is the current one. Uh, the motherboard is the main circuit board of a PC. That's where you'll find components like the CPU that connect to other components like memory, or the power supply will connect to the motherboard to supply power to all the components. So motherboard manufacturers would frequently include slots that would allow for additional cards to plug into the circuit board, thus expanding the capabilities of your PC. All the wiring, all the circuitry was there to work with the other parts of the motherboard. So if a card manufacturer, you know, a company that makes expansion cards, as long as they adhered to the standard, then you could buy the card, you could open up your computer case, you could plug the card into one of those PCI Express slots these days on the motherboard. You reassemble the case, you know, make sure everything's lined up properly with the back plate of your case, and voila, you've got added functionality to your PC without having to replace the whole darn thing. And manufacturers made all sorts of cards. And I think I first really became aware of this upon the release of various sound cards, which would allow PCs to produce all sorts of wondrous sounds and music and special effects, that kind of thing. The early PCs could essentially just beep. I mean, even R2-D2 had a more extensive vocabulary, but sound cards allowed for virtual orchestras to play on your machine. By the way, if you seek out videos of early sound cards playing computer music, you're probably going to laugh at my description because it definitely sounds primitive compared to what a PC out of the box can do these days. Now, graphics cards followed close behind sound cards. The first card to be described as having a graphics processing unit was the GeForce 256 from NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA is the same company that's behind the recent RTX 3080 and 3090 cards, by the way. More on that later. But what the heck does a graphics card actually do? Well, it's first good to remember what a CPU, or central processing unit, does. It's the CPU's job to execute instructions upon data. The data flows into the CPU from input devices... Uh, like a keyboard or a touchscreen, as well as from stored locations like a computer memory uh, or hard drives, and the instructions come 
from programs or input devices. And instructions are mathematical operations. So it might be something as simple as add this one really big number to that other really, really big number, and then compare the result to this other number, whereupon a specific outcome will follow based on that comparison. Really, everything your computer does is a result of processes like this. Uh, you could think of it as a choose-your-own-adventure book, which I guess also kind of dates me, but by that I mean you can think of a path that branches into lots of other potential pathways, and the results of a math problem determine which of those potential pathways you actually go down. Now, we describe the speed of a CPU as terms of clock speed. That refers to the number of pulses the CPU generates every second. And these regular pulses synchronize operations on the computer, and they determine the speed at which the CPU can carry out instructions on data. So, generally speaking, the higher the clock speed, or clock rate, of a computer, the more instructions the CPU can carry out per second, and the quote-unquote faster the processor is. We express this in terms of hertz, H-E-R-T-Z. That refers to cycles per second. One pulse would be one cycle. So if you have a computer with a 3.2 gigahertz processor, that processor is pulsing 3.2 billion times every second. As game developers began making more sophisticated games, particularly as the era of 3D graphics dawned, meaning you know graphics that appeared to be three-dimensional rather than a two-dimensional representation, you know, the more like cardboard cutout-looking stuff before the 3D graphics era, that's when CPUs were starting to hit a choke point. The CPU has to handle pretty much all the processing, though in some cases you might have what's called a coprocessor to tackle specific subsets of mathematical problems. Graphics cards would become another type of coprocessor. They would shoulder the work of processing the information specifically relating to presenting graphics on a display and remove that responsibility from the CPU, freeing it up so it could continue to work on, you know, other stuff. Together, the CPU and the GPU could handle all the processing that the game required and create a really cool experience for the player, you know, for a price. It was right around this time in the late 90s when I got out of PC games for a, a pretty long time. See, I had grown frustrated with the need to update my machine on a regular basis if I wanted to play the latest games. I hated the idea of having to buy an expensive graphics card every so often, and then also upgrading my entire computer, or at least replacing the CPU every couple of years on top of that. I mean, come on, these, these components are expensive. Buying a new computer is even more expensive, and in the late 90s, I was what we like to call poor. Or at least, I wasn't making enough money to be able to keep up with that cycle of upgrading if I wanted to play the latest games. So I fell off of PC games for a really long time. And instead, I saved up my money and made a switch over to consoles, like the Nintendo 64, that kind of stuff. Because one thing you can depend upon with consoles, at least until more recent generations have proven otherwise, is that... A game that's released on launch day of a console, the day the console comes out, and a game that is released at the very end of a console's life cycle should both run just fine on that console. Now, the later game should be better as developers learn how to optimize for a console's hardware, but both games should run just fine. You, you don't have to worry about your console not having the capacity to run the game. Consoles aren't designed to be upgraded generally, and so game developers have to work within those limitations and optimize their games to run on standardized hardware. PCs are totally different. PCs can come in an entire spectrum of capacities and capabilities. And generally speaking, game developers want to make the coolest stuff out there, so they're taking aim at the you know, heavier hitting end of the PC market. Usually there are ways to reduce settings so that you can at least play 
more advanced games on more modest hardware. But at some point, you just feel like you're no longer getting the experience you want and you feel obligated to upgrade. Now, even though I got out of the whole PC gaming thing for a long time, it turns out that the PC game industry was going strong without me, which I personally find very insulting. Developers were making increasingly impressive games, and GPU companies like NVIDIA followed suit by creating more capable graphics cards. And that was really a necessity that ties into a wry observation about computing power. Okay, so a lot of folks have heard about Moore's Law which we usually use in reference to how computer processing speeds improve over time. The original observation Gordon Moore made decades ago was that due to market factors, silicon chip manufacturers were cramming about twice as many components onto a single square inch of a silicon wafer as they had two years previously. And they do this by shrinking down those individual components, so they're about half the size as they had been. And that as long as the market continued to place this kind of demand on an increase in processing power, that trend would likely continue until it would become physically impossible to achieve because you just could not reduce the components in size any further due to the limitations of physics. Now these days, we dumb all that down to say, essentially, that computers double in processing power about every two years. So a typical computer in 2020 has about twice the processing capability of a typical computer from 2018. However, there's another observation called Wirth's Law, and it's named after a Swiss computer scientist named Niklas Wirth, though Wirth himself credited another computer programmer named Martin Reiser with the idea. Wirth's Law states that the demands of software grow faster than the increase in capability of hardware. So while processing speed was doubling every two years, the demands of software were such that this otherwise incredible increase in capability was hard to detect because the software of the time that people were writing was growing more demanding. This also would feed into the perception that a computer would become obsolete super fast. Like, you know, the joke was that by the time you got a computer home from the store and you got it out of the box and you plugged it in, it would be outclassed by a brand new PC unveiled at the very same store where you bought yours from. And while that was an exaggeration, it often felt like it was pretty close to the truth. The software bloat was forcing people to either rely on older programs that could still run on their PCs or else cough up the cold hard cash to buy a new computer or upgrade their current machine. Now, this cycle was felt throughout the entire PC community, but gamers felt it particularly acutely. Worth's observation, or, you know, risers if you prefer, though truthfully, people were already kind of becoming aware of this general trend around that same time, Anyway, that observation was published in 1995. The first graphics card to have what NVIDIA called a GPU would debut a couple of years later. The GPU was, in many ways, a response to the problem presented by Worth's Law. Game developers were coming up with lots of new tools that allowed them to build more spectacular games, but that in turn placed increasingly heavy demands on computers. Graphics cards were a necessity to meet those demands that the games were placing on the computer systems, and it in turn helped perpetuate this cycle. I'll explain in more detail how graphics cards help out, but generally speaking, it's a pretty simple concept. The graphics card has its own microprocessor, similar in many ways to a CPU. But a CPU is a general-purpose device, now that means it needs to be able to handle a wide spectrum of different tasks. And processors are a lot like people in this way. If you dedicate yourself to learning how to do one thing, like really focus on just one thing, then eventually you're likely to get super good at that one thing. You've blocked everything else out. If, however, 
you decide you want to be a jack of all trades, you want to learn lots of things, chances are you will not reach the same level of expertise with any single task as you would if you had just focused on that specific task. You can do all of them, and maybe you can even do them well, but not at the same level as if you had specialized. Well, the GPU is like a specialist. It doesn't have to handle all the other tasks that a CPU has to perform. It can focus on more specific types of operations, which means chip designers can create a more efficient architecture to carry out those specific processes. Specializing allows the GPU to perform a subset of tasks far more efficiently than a typical CPU could. When we come back, I'll go into this a little bit more, but first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before the break, I talked about the motherboard, you know, the primary circuit board in a computer. The motherboard has the circuitry that connects the CPU to the different components in the system, like memory and stuff. Well, a graphics card is, at its heart, a printed circuit board that in many ways is similar to a motherboard. It's smaller, and it's designed to connect to the motherboard itself, but it's got a lot of the same stuff you will find on a typical PC's motherboard. 
At the heart of the printed circuit board in the graphics card is the graphics processing unit itself, or the GPU. But you'd also have RAM dedicated to the GPU, just as the motherboard has its own RAM dedicated to the CPU. So I guess I should give you guys just a quick reminder of what RAM is. RAM stands for Random Access Memory, and it's a type of temporary computer storage. The purpose of RAM is to hold information that the CPU, or in the case of the graphics card, the GPU, needs to reference frequently. So RAM acts as kind of short-term memory, a quick reference for these processors, and RAM helps reduce the wait time for a program to complete an operation. So when your computer is running a program, it will load some information into RAM. This is the stuff that the processor is going to need most frequently to do whatever the program needs it to do. Now RAM has a limited capacity, with most PC manufacturers including you know, some RAM, but they don't max it out. They leave it up to the end consumer who can choose to purchase more RAM and then install it on the motherboard. Typically, not all motherboards allow you to do this. Uh, some companies are less open to you adding more memory to their systems. Cough, Apple, cough. The motherboard itself will have limitations to how much memory it can support. There is a top cap. You can't just keep adding RAM chip after RAM chip, you will eventually cap out. And that also means that eventually you have to do a more extensive upgrade to keep up with evolving technology as you will eventually encounter components that the old motherboard just can't support. So you'll have to, you know, go up a step. You could, I guess, keep pulling parts out of your PC and replacing them bit by bit, but sometimes it just gets to a point where it's better to go ahead and build a whole new machine. By loading information into RAM, the computer limits how frequently the processor has to send a command to retrieve information from longer-term storage, like a hard drive disk. And that process takes a little longer, actually much longer in com computer terms, than accessing information that's stored in RAM. So you've likely heard that one way to speed up your computer is to add more memory. Now the computer itself isn't actually operating faster, rather it can load more information into that temporary memory, that RAM, and thus reduce the need to go hunting for that information in long-term storage. That cuts down on delays and lag. So the processor isn't going faster just because you added RAM to it. It just doesn't need to send as many retrieve requests for data that's stored on a hard drive, for example. Graphics cards typically have a decent amount of RAM on them, sometimes beyond decent. Some, some of those graphics cards have way more memory on them than my current PC has in it, and that's just on the graphics card. Uh, but that allows the GPU the same sort of benefits that the CPU enjoys with the RAM that's on the PC's motherboard. Another important component is the connections between the processor and the memory. This is what we call a bus. A bus is sort of like a data pathway. The capacity of the bus and the actual distance between the processor and the memory can have an effect on how quickly information can move from one component in the system to the other. And really, when you start looking at computer speeds and you're looking at, you know, the the edge of computing, like the, the cutting edge, it really becomes a game of find where the bottleneck is. Is the bottleneck the processor? Well, then you need something that has a higher clock rate. Or is it a limitation in the system's memory? Then you need more RAM. Or is it the actual connection between the components? Then you might even need an upgraded motherboard with a more robust bus between processor and memory. So it all comes down to figuring out where's the slow point? Where's the weak link in this chain? The RAM on a graphics card tends to have a dual port design, meaning the system can both read and write to RAM, simultaneously. Now in the simplest design, you could do one or the other, but you couldn't do both at the same time. With older graphics cards, the RAM also connects to a component called the Digital to Analog Converter, or DAC, D-A-C. And then together you would sometimes find both of these terms smushed together. You would have uh, RAM and DAC together to make RAM DAC. 
The purpose of that component is to take digital information, which at its heart is binary, you know, in the form of zeros and ones, and then convert that into an analog signal, which is continuous and a, a changing signal that is capable of sending information to like a CRT monitor. However, today we have plenty of digital displays and digital cables, stuff like HDMI that carries digital signals, and that makes the converter component less critical. It's not really something that you would necessarily hear much about with graphics cards these days because it's just not necessary. The, the hardware people are buying doesn't require the converter. Modern graphics cards typically support multiple displays. Uh, you know, chances are a lot of you out there have systems where you have at least two displays. I've got two in front of me right now. Uh, the PCI Express connector on modern motherboards allows for support for up to four monitors, though not all graphics cards can actually do that. Not all of them have four connections for displays. Uh, the RTX 3090, the monster card that kind of prompted this whole episode, that one can support up to four monitors, and it has a maximum resolution display of 7,680 by 4,320 pixels, which we tend to just, you know, uh, say is an 8K resolution, in other words. And just in case you need a refresher, resolution refers to the pixel density on a screen. Pixels are points of light. So generally, the more points of light you have per square inch to, to make an image, the smoother the image will be. I often talk about using, like, think about wooden blocks that a kid plays with, and think of them in different colors, like just nice primary colors. If you were to try and make a picture out of those blocks, it would be very blocky. You would see the edges of each block as they were up against each other, and it wouldn't be a very smooth image. You might be able to make something people could recognize, but it wouldn't look very smooth. If you reduce the block's size in half, and you increase the number of blocks, you can make a slightly less blocky-looking image. You keep doing that over and over, reducing the pixel size and cramming more pixels in, and you create smoother images. Up to a point, right? Uh, it, you get a, a point of diminishing returns where it can be tricky to detect a meaningful difference when you're getting to ultra-high resolution displays. For instance, I remember looking at 2K, 4K, and 8K displays at CES and not being able to really tell the difference unless the screens were truly enormous, like huge displays, uh, and if I had the benefit of, you know, holding a magnifying glass so I could look at the pixels up close. But hey, at 8K resolution, you could take a tiny section of a screenshot, you could blow that tiny section up to a full screen size, and it would probably still look pretty good. Anyway, let's get back to the more general discussion of graphics cards. The early graphics cards were really dedicated to creating three-dimensional images out of binary data, and that involved building out a wire frame for the image with straight lines that would uh, end in little points, you know, connecting to other straight lines. The more straight lines you use, the smoother you can make the edges, very much like the resolution of displays. And then on top of that, you would fill in all the pixels that would exist between those lines, you would add in effects like color, texture, and lighting, and you would have to do that many times per second, uh, which is made more complicated by the fact that these images are not still images, they are changing over time, and in the case of video games, you might have a ton of things happening within the field of view simultaneously. You also get into a pair of terms that are easy to get mixed up. Refresh rate and frame rate. The refresh rate is how frequently a computer display will refresh an image on screen. So, for example, the Razer Raptor 27 gaming monitor, uh, by the way, none of this is part of, like, sponsored content or anything. I'm just using specific versions of things to kind of have concrete examples. Anyway, this, this particular gaming monitor has a refresh rate of 144 hertz. And that means that the pixels on that display refresh 144 times per second. Now, on top of that, you've got the demands of how smoothly the video game runs. And you can think of the action of a video game 
being kind of analogous to film or just plain video. And you may know that movie film consists of a strip of film onto which you have a sequence of still images. Standard film playback speed is 24 frames or images per second, meaning that for every second of movie, you are looking at a sequence of 24 pictures, and the speed of this playback is sufficient to fool our dumb, meaty brains into thinking that we're watching stuff that's actually moving. It's the illusion of movement. Well, video games create the same sort of thing in that you're watching a series of very quick instances of pixels that represent something going on, like, I don't know, Pac-Man fleeing from a ghost or something. Though I'm told by the besties that we've come a long way since Pac-Man. But we describe this as the frame rate of a video game. How frequently the graphics card generates the frames that are shown on the display in terms of frames per second. So while the two terms, refresh rate and frame rate, both deal with graphics, they are separate concerns. Generally speaking, you want more frames per second to create a smoother experience, though again, once you get above a certain amount, you start to encounter diminishing returns, meaning that you get to a point where if you increase the frame rate, you really can't tell the difference. But at lower levels, we definitely can spot the difference. The same is true with resolution. A game that's running at 20 frames per second or less is going to appear choppy. It's probably unplayable because gamers are going to miss key information and thus be incapable of reacting properly. Games running at around 30 to 45 frames per second are pretty good. I mean, they're okay, though elite gamers who have, you know, crazy refined skills would probably find it insufficient. And these are people who can see faster than I can based on my observations of viewing their live streams. Though again, to be fair, I'm viewing a live stream, which includes the compression of their video image before it gets to me. So what I see is not exactly the same thing that what they see anyway. However, most serious gamers really want frames per second rate of at least 45 and preferably 60 or even more. But as I said, once you get above 60, it becomes harder to tell the difference and it means that the graphics card has to work super hard to keep up. So it might make use of a frame buffer, which is sort of like a holding space in memory that can serve up a corresponding image when it's needed, but it still has to work super hard. Because you can just imagine how much work it is for a processor to generate the information necessary to create a high-resolution image, complete with complex textures and lighting effects, and to do so at least 60 times per second, perhaps for sessions that can last for hours, you realize that graphics cards need a good amount of power. As they got beefier, the power requirements of the graphics card exceeded what the cards could draw using the motherboard connection through that PCI Express slot I was talking about. Those are limited to providing up to 75 watts. Graphics cards frequently need in excess of 250, maybe 300 watts of power, so that necessitated the inclusion of a separate power port that would plug directly into the PC's power supply itself. That also meant that gamers often needed to upgrade their power supply on their PCs to supply the juice that the graphics card needs. As the GPU does all this work with this much power, it generates a lot of heat. And that's because no machine that we create is perfect. Every machine we humans make experiences some conversion of energy from one useful form into another form like heat, which we typically think of as lost energy. Because remember, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. You can convert it from one form into another, and if the energy converts into heat, that heat tends to just dissipate into other parts of the system or out of the system into the bigger system around it. That energy is effectively gone. You have lost it. But on top of that, heat and electronics don't get on very well. Overheated electronics can cause lots of failures, and for that reason, high-performing graphics cards have heat mitigation and management systems built into them. One common component is the heat sink. 
which is kind of what it sounds like. It's an object that disperses heat away from the heat generating object. A common heat sink is a series of fins made of a thin thermal conductor. So the fins provide a larger surface area for heat to move across. It moves out from the processor and starts to go through these fins and it dissipates more easily. But GPUs, and often CPUs, generate way too much heat for fins to handle without a little extra help. Usually, that help comes in the form of a fan, which circulates air across the fins and pulls heat away from them. High-performing graphics cards are truly beasts these days. In large cases that have their own fans that are built into the case of the card itself in order for them to help pull heat away from the heat sink. More advanced forms of heat control include things like water cooling systems, in which tubes of water move underneath various components and absorb heat from those components and carry the heat away from the processor to go through a heat exchanger, essentially a radiator, also made out of fins. So these fins take the heat from the water, cooling the water down so that it can continue to circulate through the system, pull more heat from the processor, take it to the fins, etc. Typically, the fins are also cooled by a fan, so there's like multiple elements to this particular system. There's lots of points of failure, too. So these things, not only are they expensive and complicated, they can... They, they have more points of failure. doesn't mean that they're less reliable. just means that there's more opportunities for stuff to go wrong. Uh, however, it might be necessary if you're really running some of these graphics components at their highest capabilities. And you can kind of think of this as the circle of life, or at least the circle of a heat exchange system. I've got some more to say about GPUs, but before I get to that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. 
And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one thing I haven't really touched on in this episode yet is the practice of overclocking. So remember when I said that we measure processor performance speed in part by talking about the clock rate? Well, processor manufacturers typically set an upper limit on a processor's clock rate. Usually this is to make sure that the processor is going to perform reliably under what's considered to be normal operating conditions. And sometimes it can get a little more icky than that. There have been some processor companies that have used the exact same chip with different limiting factors on the clock rate in order to offer up a range of products at a range of prices. So you could have an entry-level chip and then maybe a moderate chip and then maybe a premium chip, each with a different clock rate. But it turns out all three are the exact same chip. It's just that the manufacturer has put a kind of artificial limit on how fast the, the chip can run. That doesn't happen all the time, but it has happened before. And I personally find that kind of weird because the capability was there for all three. It's not like the price of the premium chip for the manufacturer was greater than the entry-level chip. It's the same chip. Costs the same amount to make it. Anyway, that's another topic. So the fact is most processors can operate at a higher clock rate than what manufacturers rate them for. And with a little tweaking, you can make those processors operate at that faster rate. That is, you can if the motherboard and processors that you have are the right models. Some systems put really hard limits on that kind of stuff and prevent you from changing the clock rate on a processor to any real degree. But if your system allows for overclocking, you would make the changes in the computer's BIOS. Maybe you're using some special software to do it to make it you know, easier to manage. And you would essentially be increasing the clock rate and probably also boosting the voltage that is going to the processor. Essentially, you push more voltage through more pressure to the processor, it will work faster. That's the kind of loosey-goosey way to explain it. Overclocked processors can lead to better results when it comes to stuff like, you know, rendering graphics at a high frame rate, but it can also cause stability problems with a PC, and it also generates way more heat. Serious gamers who overclock their systems really should look into water cooling systems. In the competitive overclocking scene, I mean, like these people are pushing the limits to what overclocking can do. It's not unusual to see competitors use extreme cooling solutions like liquid nitrogen. Liquid nitrogen has a boiling point of minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 196 degrees Celsius. That means that at that temperature, nitrogen would boil off into a gas. So you have to keep it colder than that to keep it liquid, or you have to keep it under compression, but neither here nor there. Anyway, that's, that's pretty dang frosty. It's also, by the way, not recommended for practical everyday use, even for hardcore gamers. Now, if you do wish to experiment with overclocking, there are a lot of useful resources online for you to follow. And it's important to look stuff up with your particular hardware because the process is not uniform across all pieces of hardware. The one bit of advice I would give anyone who wants to overclock their system is to do so in very small increments and run tests frequently to check to see what the heat levels are and checking your computer stability. And then you can gradually bump up the overclocking rate bit by bit as a test. And then once you start to see a dip in performance or you see temperatures going above a certain threshold, you can then back off a little bit and say, okay, this is my new peak for where my, my, my processor can work. And that applies both to the CPU and the GPU. Now, I mentioned earlier that the first generation of dedicated graphics cards were 
really about handling some of the heavy lifting when it comes to 3D graphics. These days, there's a lot more to it than that. And you've got speed and detail and color representation all being a big deal. But perhaps the most buzzy of buzzworthy terms to emerge in the graphics scene lately is ray tracing. Ray tracing ultimately is about how a computer system handles the display of light. Like, how does it portray light on the display? Not how does it get the image to your eyeballs, but when you are playing a game where there are, you know, light is playing across the scene, how does it handle that? The goal of ray tracing is to create graphic systems in which light in the virtual world behaves the same way it does out here in the real world, complete with how light bounces off of objects, how shadows are created, what reflections look like, and more. So imagine that you're walking through a real-world forest, and sunlight is occasionally breaking through the forest canopy overhead in some places. In person, this kind of experience would have a lot of really subtle details in light that older graphics cards just couldn't really replicate. So with those games where you might be in like in a jungle or in a forest, you would typically have a, a more uniform approach to how light was presenting itself within the game. You might have some areas that are darker than others or brighter than others, but the graphics cards weren't really able to get super subtle and detailed about it. Now, a card that supports ray tracing might be able to do a better job of that and other stuff as well. So, for example, a rain-soaked street might reflect a neon sign back at you in a really realistic way, and as you move around, the light behaves just as it would in real life. This is actually a really tricky thing to do. It requires a good deal of horsepower. It also requires support from the software side. The game has to include ray tracing for this to be a thing, after all. But the latest graphics cards often tout ray tracing as a big feature. Now, a few years ago, the big buzzworthy term was HDR, or High Dynamic Range. HDR refers to the spectrum of luminosity that a display can provide, which deals with both the range of colors that the display can create, as well as the range of brightness per pixel. So it's a combination of color and brightness, and the, the, the variety that the display can create. And a system that supports HDR can typically create really spectacular images. And this also ref reflects the fact that, you know, image resolution is not the end-all be-all. For a long time, especially with camera manufacturers, the use of megapixels was the way to really push a camera. More megapixels equals more good. That's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of other factors that play a part, like contrast and color representation. Anyway, if you hear about ray tracing, that's really what it comes down to, trying to simulate within a virtual world the way light behaves in the real world. Now, I mentioned earlier that graphics cards, uh, the top-of-the-line ones, can be hard to find. And why is that? Well, not only are they sought after by, you know, real elite gamers, but they also are often used by people who want to do a lot of parallel processing with a networked system of computers, typically to do something like Bitcoin mining or sometimes even breaking encryption. So let me explain. And I've talked about parallel processing in previous episodes, including some fairly recent ones, which it all involves using two or more processors or two or more processor cores to divide up tasks so that it takes less time to complete the overall task. You're breaking it down into parts, and it's faster to solve the parts than it is to solve the thing as a whole. Not all computational problems can break into a parallel approach, but for the ones that can, parallel processing can speed things up considerably. One application of parallel processing involves working out the potential answer to difficult math problems, which happens to be the way cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin verify transactions and subsequently reward the system that solves the problem with some cryptocurrency. So in other words, people use Bitcoins to make a transaction, right? They pay for something in Bitcoin. The record of that transaction goes into a block of data. And when that block is full, when it's hit as many transactions as it can hold, 
it has to be verified before it can join the chain of previous blocks, the blockchain. The Bitcoin system devises a difficult math problem that will verify the transactions and thus make the block the most recent in the chain of transaction blocks. The first computer system to provide the correct solution to this hard math problem gets some Bitcoins in return. And as long as the value of the Bitcoin reward is greater than what it cost to get to that reward, there's an incentive to build out faster computer systems to try and solve the problems before anyone else does. Now, these high-end graphics cards aren't cheap. The founder's edition of the RTX 3090, that is, the version of the card that's actually built by NVIDIA, would set you back about 1,500 US dollars if you could find one. But as I record this, the value of a single Bitcoin is more than 10,700 US dollars, and if you solved a block, you would actually net 12.5 Bitcoins. So that means one solution is worth more than $125,000. And new blocks join the blockchain every 10 minutes. So if you have the fastest system trying to solve these Bitcoin problems and you're able to solve a significant number of them for whatever span of time you're looking at, you're looking at a fortune, which means there is a huge incentive for Bitcoin miners to sweep up powerful processors that could give them the edge when it comes to solving those problems and netting a ridiculous amount of money, virtual money, but money. So they really want those processors. They could buy a hundred of these NVIDIA cards and they could pay it off by solving two blocks. Not that this is particularly easy, but you get the point. There's the incentive there. Yowza. And that means that actual gamers are competing not just against each other to get hold of these graphics cards, but against Bitcoin miners. And on the positive side, it means that if you aren't absolutely determined to have the state-of-the-art hardware in your machine, you can probably settle for a card that comes from the previous generation, or maybe two generations back, because Bitcoin miners really have no option but to embrace the fastest hardware, because if they don't, the odds of them having a system capable of solving a Bitcoin problem first reduce down to near zero. One of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that the complexity of the math problem is actually dependent upon the amount of processing power being dedicated to solving the problem. So if the Bitcoin system and if it detects that computers are solving the problems too quickly, it will automatically increase the difficulty of the math problem for the next generation of uh, transaction solutions. Now, we'll likely see this whole cycle continue until it becomes more expensive to scoop up the graphics cards than you would make in solving the blockchain problem. So every four years or so, the number of Bitcoins that are released per solution reduces by half. When Bitcoins first appeared, you would get 50 of them when you solved a blockchain transaction problem. These days, it's 12.5. There is a finite number of Bitcoins that will ever exist. So eventually, we're going to reach a point where the reward you get for solving a blockchain problem will be relatively low, and it won't justify hoarding and operating a suite of GPU cards in various computer cases that are all networked together. It would be more expensive to do that than you would make from solving blockchain problems. Now, you could still do it if you wanted to, but you would lose money in the process, so it doesn't make sense. But for the time being, it is incredibly frustrating. Building on that frustration are some recent problems with those RTX 3080 and 3090 cards. Now, I mentioned a Founders card earlier, and that that is a card that's made by NVIDIA itself. But NVIDIA also licenses out the design, the specs 
of the graphics cards to other manufacturers, essentially saying, here are the components you need to put together to make one of these cards. And then these other manufacturers, it's up to them to actually follow instructions, essentially, and make their own version of the 3080 and the 3090 cards. Some of these companies will end up putting their own little spin on the card designs, and unfortunately, that can sometimes result in cards that have poor reliability or other performance issues, and that's one of the things that seems to have happened with the RTX 3080 and 3090 cards. It didn't take long for people to report that they were having some problems while running games on systems that had these new graphics cards in them. Uh, Sometimes they would get kicked out of a game and back to the operating system. Sometimes the whole system would crash. Sometimes they would get weird artifacts and lines that would show up on screen. Now, this would all be unacceptable for just a modest graphics card, but it's really hard to forgive for a high-end model like, say, the 3090. And while it's early days, and it's difficult for me to point a finger on any one specific problem or cause of this, what appears to be the issue is that some of these companies that are manufacturing this kind of graphics card have taken some liberties with the design that ultimately have hurt the stability of the card's performance. In particular, the founder's version of the card has a series of small capacitors that some card manufacturers have replaced with a single cheaper capacitor, and that in turn seems to create some electrical interference issues that create an unstable environment. And it also makes talking about specific graphics cards more confusing, because while NVIDIA is responsible for the card design, as well as the manufacture of the founder's version of the card, other companies are making the same type of card, but potentially with tweaks to that design or with less expensive components. That's why you can actually find a range of prices for the same type of graphics card. Some companies are using more premium components, which in turn drives the price of the finished card up. Other companies are using lower cost components in an effort to bring the price down enough so they can sell a high-performing graphics card but at a lower price than their competitors are offering. However, the danger of that is that the lower price components may not be as reliable as the ones that come stock with the Founders Edition. Of course, some companies might even go the other way. They might include even more expensive components than the Founders version does. And those cards will be more expensive. But if the manufacturers can sell consumers on the benefits of those more expensive components, it can pay off in the long run. It becomes a real game of deciding what is going to be most important and most profitable. In the end, these cards are necessary if you want to get the most out of a gaming experience, and it also is necessary to revitalize your machine every so often. Um, I know some people who update their machines maybe twice a year, which to me is incredible. I can't, like, I I still am of the mindset that that's way too much money to be spending on a single device over and over and over again. Um, but I'm also not a pro gamer and I'm not a streamer. So there's that. I would be more likely to buy a more modest graphics card and hope that it gets me through the next, like, couple of years and then upgrade from there uh, but then again, I'm not doing it for a living, so I'm I'm a different consumer anyway. But I hope that this helps illustrate what graphics processor units do, what graphics cards are meant for, why it's hard to find them, and uh, you know what's going on with the current craze with the graphics cards that are on the market today. I am going to sign off now. We're gonna wrap this one up but if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff send me a message the best way to do it is on twitter we use the handle tech stuff hsw and i'll talk to you again really soon tech stuff is an iHeartRadio production for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. 
You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.